Well, as we begin this morning, I want to remind you of what Jesus so clearly declares in Matthew chapter 6. He says that if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. So pretty clear command, don't you think? Jesus commanding us to forgive. So if we forgive, it proves we're forgiven. But if we're unwilling, unable, or even reluctant to forgive, then neither will we be forgiven. So just confirming, everybody's clear, right? That's God's command. Okay? Well, then let me tell you a story about Corey Tenboom. Because Corey and her sister Betsy worked closely with their father to help Jews escape from the Nazi Holocaust of World War II, which resulted in them getting arrested and thrown into Ravensbrück concentration camp, where Corey's father and sister both died. But Corey lived through it, got out, and had many opportunities to share her experience, not only in writing The Hiding Place, but in speaking at different events. Well, at one of those events, she had a unique opportunity to interact with one of the Nazi officers responsible for her sister's death. Allow me to quote her at length. Corey says, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, where we were sent. Now here he was in front of me, hand thrust out, saying, fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had just spoken so fluently on forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket rather than take his hand. You mentioned Ravenscroft in your talk. I was a guard there. But since then, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and yet could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. That I knew. Because Jesus says, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew that, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can't function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love or God's joy so intensely as I did 
then. Now make the connection. Because believing in Jesus is abiding in Jesus, is loving Jesus, is obeying Jesus. Those are all synonyms which result in pure joy. Corey says, I had never known God's love or God's joy so intensely as I did then. So obedience to God's good and perfect commands brings fullness of joy, pure joy. Now, that obviously doesn't make obedience easy, right? Corey said forgiving the Nazi guard was the most difficult thing she ever had to do. So obeying God is not always easy, but obeying God always results in joy. A joy that cannot be found in jobs or in money, relationships or entertainment, in sex, drugs, or rock and roll, because it's an eternal joy. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die this morning. Reason number six, to provide true believers with fullness of joy, which is exactly what we're going to find in John chapter 15. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 15. It's on page 901 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. also encourage you to grab my outline. It's going to take us a little bit to get to fullness of joy, we need to navigate, abide in true vine, abide in Christ's love, and then we'll land in pure joy found in Christ. So follow along as I read John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now, as we jump in, we've got to start by understanding the vine analogy, including this incredible I am statement. Now, if you know the gospel of John, you already know Jesus has already told us, I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and life, and I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And all of those, every single one, point us back to Exodus chapter 3, where God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, saying, I am that I am. So when Jesus says, I am the vine, he is clearly declaring that he is God in the flesh. But Jesus also says, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So a couple of questions should immediately come to your mind. The first is, if Jesus is the true vine, then who exactly is the false vine? 
And second, if God's the vine dresser, what exactly is his role in this analogy? Now, to answer the first, let me give you a quick introduction to the vine analogy by having you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Got to understand what Jesus is saying in the context of the Bible. So flip back, Isaiah 5, page 569, Isaiah chapter 5. Follow along, I'll just read the first seven verses. Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard, so the Lord's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it and planted it with choice vines, as we'll see, that's the nation of Israel. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine vat, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes or wicked grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes, wicked grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. So he's talking about God's judgment because of their sinfulness. Look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his planting, and he, God, looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And then Isaiah starts pronouncing woes on the wicked. So who's the false fine? It's the nation of Israel, the people who disobeyed God's commands because he was looking for justice, but got bloodshed, looking for righteousness, but got wickedness. So you have to hear the words of John 15 in their biblical context. Flip back to John 15. Jesus is saying, not only I am God in the flesh, but he's saying, I am the true vine. So he's saying, I'm the perfect son of God who is without sin. God looked for justice, and I kept it perfectly. In fact, at this point in John, Jesus will be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross in just a few hours. The cross is right around the corner. So introduction to the vine analogy. Israel is the false vine. Jesus is the true vine, which is absolutely critical when we start talking about our identity being in Christ, because what's true for Christ will then be true for us, which is clearly judgment for the false vine, but is pure joy for all those who are in the true vine, abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second question, if God is the vine dresser, what exactly is his role in this analogy? So B, function of the vine dresser. Well, Jesus tells us in verse 2 that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he the vine dresser, God the Father, takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he the Father prunes. Why? So that it might bear more fruit. So clearly two things that the Father does. Number one, he has authority to remove fruitless branches. And number two, he has authority to prune branches that are bearing fruit so that they might bear more fruit. So he cuts away the lifeless and he cultivates the living. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 8, to the one who has, more shall be given. But the one who does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken 
away. So let's start by looking at the first group, the branches that are seemingly in Christ that do not bear fruit and are taken away. As I just said, the Father cuts them away and destroys the lifeless branches. Now, how can I say that if these branches are really in Christ? Well, look at verse 5. It's because they're not really in Christ, which is why they're not bearing fruit, right? Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, notice he it is that bears much fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, does not abide in Christ, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and burned. Clearly a picture of judgment. So those who don't bear fruit don't really abide in Christ, don't believe in Christ, don't love Christ, don't obey Christ, no matter what they declare, no matter how loudly they declare it. They'll be judged for it, thrown into the fire. Which raises the question, can a branch, so a person who is truly abiding in Jesus, believes in Jesus, loves Jesus, and has eternal life in union with Jesus, lose it? In the end, I would immediately say no to that question. Jesus labors. In fact, in in John, he labors to tell us that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So the Bible clearly teaches eternal security that those who are truly in Christ will remain in Christ and have an eternal hope that can never be taken away, then who are the branches in verse 2 that are in Christ but who don't bear fruit and are therefore thrown into the fire and burned up? A couple examples. Well, think about Judas. Judas was with Christ for three years. And yet he demonstrated that he was not really in Christ. Why? Because he totally denied Jesus in the end. So bad fruit, right? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. So Judas was not truly in Christ, demonstrated by the bad fruit of denying the Lord Jesus Christ in the end. Verse 8, gathered up, thrown into the fire, burned eternal destruction. That's one example. How about John chapter 8, where it says that these people believed in Jesus, but at the end of the story, they pick up stones and they try to kill Jesus. You can't believe in Jesus and want to kill Jesus, right? Your your, your fruit demonstrates that you're not really believing in Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in that context? John 8, verse 31. He said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free to do what? Free to bear fruit, and so prove to be his disciples. But please, be absolutely clear here. Bearing fruit does not make you a true disciple, meaning you can't earn your way to heaven. Instead, it proves that you are a true disciple because it proves that you're truly abiding, believing, trusting, resting, loving, and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. Which brings us to number two, the the Father's authority to prune the branches. Verse two says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes... For this purpose, 
that it may bear more fruit. And yet it's pruning, right? Pruning means cutting. Cutting means pain. You know, I had a friend who lived in a town. He lived in the town of Northeast Pennsylvania, which is actually located in the furthest northwest corner of Pennsylvania, which I find hilarious that Northeast Pennsylvania is located in Northwest Pennsylvania. Anyway, there's a little bit of my humor. I think that's funny, but why am I telling you this, right? Northeast Pennsylvania in Northwest Pennsylvania is home to one of Welch's largest manufacturing plants, which produces, listen to this, 280 different juices, jams, and jellies. So 29 million cases a year of jams and jellies and 17 million gallons of juice come out of that facility. And why Northeast Pennsylvania? Well, because Northeast has one of the finest environments to grow Concord grapes. For example, in an average season, they harvest over 125,000 tons of grapes. And they do that from 724 different landowners. So, so vines that are just absolutely overflowing with grapes, bearing unbelievable amounts of fruit. And yet, in the off-season, they cut them back to nothing. They prune them until they're completely bare, strategically cut back, purposely manicured, so that they might bear even more fruit next year. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That the Father prunes the branches that bear fruit so that they may bear even more fruit. Now just think about the work that God is doing in your life. Like one of those Welsh branches. He's pruning. He's strategically cutting back. He's purposely manicuring so that your life might be overflowing with even more fruit. How do I interpret the difficulties in my life? Yeah, the Lord's pruning you. He's doing a good work so that even in the midst of the difficulty, even in the midst of the trial, we might praise God and bear more fruit for his glory. You know, Hebrews 12 says it this way, the Lord disciplines, he prunes those whom he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines them for their good so that they might share in his holiness. Now for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We know that, we feel that, but later it yields, listen to this, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Father does two things. He removes branches and he prunes branches, which forces us to ask the question, doesn't it? Are we absolutely sure that we are abiding in Christ, that our identity is truly found in him? Well, let's look at the description we're given in verses four to five to help us with that. See the description of abiding in Christ. Because Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. 
So we're commanded, verse 4, to abide in him. Why? Because a branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It has to be in the vine in order to bear fruit. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever seen the branch of an apple tree falling off, broken down, separated from the tree, bearing abundant amounts of apples? That's not how it works, is it? I mean, we just had these horrible rainstorms, right? I like to refer to them as the Noahic floods, right? It seems like every single day, like out of nowhere, it just rains and rains and rains, 40 days and 40 nights, right? It feels like that, right? But as a result of that storm, right, I've had branches come down in my yard, as I'm sure you did, right? The branch comes down, right? When it comes down, immediately comes down, it still has leaves on it. I collect them. I bring them in the back of my shed. And what happens a day later when I go look at them? No leaves. That's how quickly, if, if you're not in the vine, you can't bear fruit. It can't. It's impossible. It dies. It perishes. So I'm wondering if you get that this morning. Do you really get that? That apart from Christ, verse 5, you can do nothing. You can't bear fruit. You can't grow. You can't thrive, at least not spiritually, because what fruit are we talking about here? We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians chapter 5, what is that fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, Paul says, there is no law. There's no law because that's what righteousness looks like. That's what it looks like to do what is right, to love one another, to live for God's glory, all in harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ, which I'm going to tell you when you do that is absolutely beautiful and brings you great joy. Here's my question. Are you trying to move forward in your sanctification process, looking more and more like Jesus, by just working harder on your own? When verse 5 is so crystal clear, right? It says that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So, so we need to stop working so hard at our own self-made righteousness, which doesn't mean that you let go and let God, but instead it means that you make sure that you're working hard at what? Not looking righteous, but you work hard at abiding in Christ. Work hard at that. Work hard at delighting in Jesus, loving Jesus, believing Jesus, and obeying Jesus. How exactly does that work? Well, he tells us right here in verses 7 and 8, doesn't he? Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you want to look more like Jesus? Do you want to be transformed? Do you want to put sin to death in your life and walk in righteousness? Do you want those actions and attitudes that are ugly and wicked gone? Do you want the fruit of the Spirit? Let me put it this way. Do you want your life to be filled with fullness of joy? Well, then meditate on God's Word and pray that God would change you. You know, so often people tell me that they're feeling dry in their faith and disconnected from God. So they're discouraged, they're not seeing any fruit in their life, there's, there's no growth, there's certainly no joy. So I ask them in response, 
Are you reading your Bible? Are you meditating on God's Word? Are you memorizing passages that directly apply to the sin issues in your life? And are you praying that God would mold you and shape you? That He would move mightily in your life for there to be real change and real transformation? And are you sharing this with other brothers and sisters in Christ so that they can pray for you as well? And of course, what's the answer? Every time. No. I haven't read my Bible in months. I haven't been praying. I haven't been meditating. Then why do you expect to grow and bear fruit? You're not connected to the vine. But when you're reading, when you're meditating, when you're memorizing and praying, then you're constantly delighting yourself in the Lord Jesus. So you're abiding in Christ, resting in Christ, trusting in Christ, not yourself to do a good work in your own life. The Spirit of God using the Word of God to impact the people of God, namely you, (laughs) which results in radical transformation. And when there's radical transformation in your life, three things happen absolutely naturally. Number one, you glorify God. Why do you glorify God? Because things are changing in your life that you know that you couldn't possibly change yourself. So you glorify God. Number two, you prove to be Christ's disciple. Why is that? Because you have real fruit in your life. Real transformation. And number three, really as a result, I think of number one and two, you're filled with the fullness of joy. I mean, do you understand We rob ourselves of joy when we don't just listen to God's commands. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Number six, to provide true believers who abide in Christ, love Christ, believe Christ, and obey Christ with fullness of joy. Do you see how that works? That when you delight yourself completely in Christ, you you read the word and you pray, and God uses both of them for you to cause fruit, right? For you to bear fruit in your life, to walk in righteousness, to keep his commands, and to love others as you love yourself, which results in pure joy. Not just any joy, not fleeting joy, but the joy of the Lord, fullness of joy. That's what it looks like, number one, to abide in the true vine. And that's what it looks like, number two, to abide in Christ's love. Jesus isn't going to say anything radically different in this next section of Scripture. He just presses home the same glorious truth using a little bit different wording. But if you would, go ahead and follow follow along as I read verses 9 to 17. Jesus says, as the Lord has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. 
These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, obviously, we moved away from the vine analogy. Why is that? Well, because analogies are limited. So a picture of vines and branches is helpful, but it doesn't completely capture what it looks like to love Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, or walk in obedience to him. But Jesus makes it crystal clear, doesn't he, that our love for Christ, A, flows from God's love for us. Look again at verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. And on top of that, Jesus says in verse 13, greater love is no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Be clear, Christ's death on the cross is the greatest picture of love ever seen. Now he commands us in verse 9. Look at this command. This is like the greatest command you could ever be given. He says, abide in that love. Remain in it. Delight in it. Thrive in it. And never, ever depart from it. How do we do that? I want to abide in his love. How do I do that? By keeping Christ's commands. B, abiding in Christ's love results in obedience. Now that might sound, that might sound like the exact opposite of what Jesus says in verse 10, because he says there, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, which sure sounds conditional, right? Like, like abiding in Christ's love is dependent on us keeping his commands. So we have to ask the question again, is that a works-based righteousness? No, of course not. Jesus is not saying that we have to earn his love. Instead, he's saying the exact same thing he just said back in verses 1 to 8, that those who truly abide in Christ are those who truly love Christ, believe in Christ, trust Christ, and are completely resting in Christ's finished work on the cross. And therefore, as a result of that, they bear the fruit of keeping Christ's commands. Now, not perfectly, but progressively. So there's real change in a person's life. But that obedience, keeping Christ's commands, is so linked, so connected, so certain for those who truly abide in Christ's love that it's a definite for the true believer. Right? So in the exact same way that if there's no fruit in your life, then you can't possibly be connected to the vine. If there's no growth in obedience, then you can't possibly be abiding in Christ's love. So obedience doesn't earn God's favor, but it proves that you are truly Christ's disciple. Now I'm going to skip over verse 11 for just a moment. I'm going to do that because it's the summary idea of this entire section. And I think that because Jesus unpacks the obedience that he's talking about in verse 10 in verses 12 to 15, that keeping God's commands can be summarized in just one word. What's the one word? Love. Keeping Christ's commands are summarized in that one word, love. Look at what he says, verse 12. This is my commandment. Here's what you need to obey. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, greater love is no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So how do we abide in Christ's love? Well, we love one another, just like he loved us. 
That's what it looks like to keep his commandments. It looks like love, love for God and love for one another. And when we love like that, we actually fulfill God's law, the Ten Commandments. I mean, just think about it with me. What are the first four commandments? Do you know them? What are the first four commandments? They're all in reference to our relationship with God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's what it looks like for us to love God. What are the next six? They have everything to do with our love for one another. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. That's what it looks like for us to love one another. The Ten Commandments are love for God, love for one another. Now listen to what Paul says in Romans 13, 8. He says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Which is the exact same thing as abiding in Christ, bearing fruit, and proving to be Christ's disciples. And that makes total sense, doesn't it? That if we're truly in Christ, then we're going to look like Christ, right? Are you making that connection? Here's what love looks like. Lay down his life for his friends. And he calls us to do what? To love others, to lay down our lives for our friends, right? Makes perfect sense that we should look like Jesus. And we do look like Jesus when we are truly in Christ. And we see this all the time, right? I mean, just think about some of the kids that you know. All you have to do is look at kids that you know, and you immediately know which family they're from, right? Right? Facial features, eyes, nose, mouth. They talk like their parents. They use the same words, gestures, mannerisms. Their personalities are similar. Same sense of humor, same disposition towards life, same priorities, same likes and dislikes. You ask my kids, what's their favorite football team? Green Bay Packers. Why is that? Well, because I love the Green Bay Packers, right? They, they look like me. You know, I have this, uh, I got to tell you this. I have this uh, one friend. Uh, he's a great guy, but he has a funny walk. It's, it's kind of like he's, uh, uh, I don't know, like on rails, you know, and he kind of moves his feet like this. Like he kind of plods along, right? One day I was watching him walk. He's a great friend of mine. I love him dearly, right? No comment about him or his character or anything like that. But watching him walk, and all of a sudden his son came walking, and I just started cracking up. Like, it's like, you walk like your dad. Just like his dad. He's identical, right? So, so don't miss what I'm saying. When we're abiding in Christ and our identity is truly in Christ, loving, believing, resting, and obeying Christ, then we should look like Christ. We should talk like Christ. We should serve like Christ. We should sacrifice like Christ. And we should absolutely love like Christ. Joyfully keeping God's commands just like Christ which we already know, verse 8, by this God is glorified that we bear much fruit and so prove to be Christ's disciples. And notice how Jesus ends this section in the exact same way that he did the first section with C, a connection to prayer. Jesus says in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear fruit so that whatever you ask, that's prayer, the Father in my name, this he may give to you. Do you see the connection to verse 8? Because it's prayer consistent with the word of God that results in the fruit of the Spirit. And I already told you what happens when you do that. Number one, 
You glorify God. Number two, you prove to be Christ's disciples. And number three, you are filled with joy. Great joy. Pure joy. Which brings us to number three. Pure joy found in Christ. Now, I recognize that it took us a little bit of time to get here. But verse 11 is the upshot so there's, there's parallel passages happening here, right? But the upshot of everything that Jesus has been saying is right here in verse 11. And why is that as you look at this passage? Because there's so many synonyms being used, aren't there? Because believing in Jesus is abiding in Jesus, is loving Jesus, is obeying Jesus, is bearing fruit for Jesus, is keeping Jesus' commands. Those are all synonyms that absolutely need to be true in a believer's life in order for there to be this one awesome result. What is the one awesome result? Joy. Pure joy. Fullness of joy. Look at what he says in verse 11. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you. I've said all this to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I've said all these things. I've said all of them for this one purpose, that you might be filled with joy, pressed down, filled up, overflowing in your life, fullness of joy. Don't you want that this morning? I mean, is there anyone here who wants to argue with me that, number one, you don't want pure joy in your life? Is there anybody here who is, who is saying, you know, really my whole goal in life is not joy, it's actually to be absolutely miserable? Like, I, I want discouragement and depression to categorize all that I do in my life. That's my greatest goals. Is anybody going to say that? Is anybody going to say to me that you already have enough joy in your life? You know, Steve, I so appreciate that you're, you're offering me joy, fullness of joy. I just joyed out. I've got enough joy. I don't need any more joy. You keep your joy. Right? Anybody going to say that? No takers. Great. Then please listen to me when I say to you, God's commands are what you'd wish for yourself if you knew what was best for you. Let me say it again. God's commands, the commandments of God, are what you would wish for yourself. Three wishes. I wish for God's commands because I know that they are what's best for me. Which means when you believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, you abide in Jesus, you obey Jesus, and you keep God's commands, you will experience what is absolutely best for you, which in turn brings you joy. Fullness of joy. And why is that? Why do we start Kid Venture with Creator? God created you. He designed you. Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139 says that your soul, if you're honest about it, 
knows it very well. God created you. He designed you. What does that mean? It means that he knows what will bring you the greatest joy if you're just going to listen to him. And your greatest joy occurs, A, when you delight yourself in Christ. Do you realize that this morning? The greatest joy you will ever experience in this life is found only when you delight yourself in Jesus and not in other things. I mean, just think about all the different areas where you are tempted to find joy. How about your job? You put all your joy in your career, the position you have, and the role that you serve in your company. So your significance, your identity, hinges on how things are going at work. And let me just ask, how's that going for you? Joy? Some days, maybe. But is your career going to last forever? What happens when you retire? What happens when you die? Or how about finding your joy in money and possessions? So the house that you own, the cars that you drive, the things that you have, keeping up with the Joneses and buying into the lie that whoever has the most toys in the end, when they die, wins. Let me just ask you, does stuff ever result in inexpressible eternal joy? No, I'm not saying stuff doesn't give you temporary joy. I'm not suggesting that at all. It does. There's temporary joy. But is it an eternal joy? No. Why? You can't take that stuff with you. Right? I mean, have you ever seen a hearse with a U-Haul trailer? No. Why? You can't take it with you. Temporary joy, but never, ever is it inexpressible eternal joy. Not in stuff, not in possessions, not in money. How about relationships? Finding your joy in people, your family, your friends. Now, I actually think this one brings levels of significant joy, but nothing close to the fullness of joy that Jesus is talking about here, but serious joy nonetheless. But that's because believing in Jesus, abiding in Jesus, loving Jesus, obeying Jesus is all about having a relationship with Jesus. But the relationships of this world, I'm sorry to tell you, they're going to fail you. Why is that? Because people are flawed, right? They're sinful. They're going to let you down at some point in the end. But Jesus will never, ever let you down. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, which Jesus has already done. So he offers you an eternal relationship. Do you understand? That's the glory of Psalm 1611. It says, in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's a person. That's an eternal relationship with Jesus. In his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Are you seeing that this morning? That if you're not believing abiding, loving, obeying, or delighting yourself in the Lord Jesus, there's no eternal joy. Instead, 
The vine dresser is going to gather you up, throw you into the fire, where you will experience eternal damnation. As he promised, as he warned you, rather than fullness of joy. But it doesn't have to be that way. Right? You still have time to delight yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it requires you to count the cost. You've got to own your sin against the holy God. You have to repent of those sins. You have to turn from them, and you need to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's the offer in front of you this morning, eternal destruction or fullness of joy. Oh, please, listen to me. He's not joking around. Hebrews says, first you die, then comes the judgment. Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Don't use hell as a punch word for your jokes, as if it doesn't exist. It does. Eternal judgment be warned. Delight yourself in the, in the Lord Jesus. Fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. Grab a hold of him for all your worth this morning. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Dear believer, I'm wondering if you're making the connection this morning that obeying Jesus really does lead to pure joy. Follow me. Obedience to his commands really does result in fullness of joy. You know, I don't think we really get that. Meaning, we totally understand that believing in Jesus is loving Jesus, and that results in the joy of having our sins forgiven. We get that part. But do you really understand that obeying Jesus real time, every day, day in, day out, really does lead to the fullness of joy? I mean, just think about Corey Tenbu, right? She said, forgiving that Nazi guard was the most difficult thing that I ever had to do. And yet I had to do it. Why? Because I needed to obey my Savior. Her faith in Christ caused her to act on God's command. So rather than listening to her own thinking, which she confesses in the hiding place, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to not put my hand up. That's where I wanted to go. And yet, faith, working itself out, meant she obeyed God. She reached out her hand. She forgave the Nazi guard. And do you remember the description? Why did I read such a long quote this morning? Because I wanted you to hear her words, not my words. I don't want to put words into her mouth. These are her words. This is what Corey said. She said, the current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing Warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, and I had never known God's love or God's joy so intensely as I did then. Do you see the connection? Obedience leads to pure joy. 
fullness of joy. Here's the question. Are you a professing Christian here this morning who is totally lacking joy? Meaning you spend the majority of your life complaining about your job, your spouse, your family, or the fact that our country is going to hell in a handbasket. Right? You know what I'm talking about. You spend, if I, if I had to categorize your life, the category would be complaining, not joy, not delighting in the Lord Jesus Christ and joyfully obeying his commands, which are what you'd absolutely wish for yourself if you knew what was best for you. So I'm appealing to you, dear believer, stop trusting your own thinking and start believing in Jesus, meaning you're making conscious decisions that whatever the situation is, you're not going to go with your own leaning. Instead, you're going to trust his commands, knowing when I trust his commands, there is fullness of joy. You know, I think we've bought the lie in this culture that, that, that somehow duty for, duty before delight is wrong. Duty before delight is not wrong. Obedience results in joy. Duty, then delight. Understand what I'm saying? Not just what you do naturally. That's what I'm trying to appeal to you. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't just think, well, if I don't want to do it, then I shouldn't do it. That's wrong. How is that going for you? Right? When you do just what you love to do, I always get in trouble rather than doing what he commands me to do. See, my faith causes me not to turn left, but to turn right. Obeying Jesus. Duty. Result. Delight. Pure joy. And, and you know that, don't you? Like on a daily basis. What happens when you disobey God? Do you get joy then? No. Here's what you get. Guilt and shame. Every time. I'm confessing here. I'm not making any accusation about you. But how stupid do you have to be? Every time I disobey, guilt, shame, guilt, shame, disobey, guilt, shame. Obedience, joy. I don't know about you. I say, obey. Duty. Then there's delight. Pure joy. Fullness of joy. So let's, let's just press it down a little bit. What's it for you? What, what is it for you where you struggle with obedience? Maybe it's relationships. You have a really hard time speaking up about your faith in Christ because you're so worried about what people are going to think about you. So you've got this big, massive fear of man issue. Don't you Realize that when you delight yourself in the Lord, you start living for an audience of one, which means what other people think grows strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace because you're living for an audience of one. There is pure joy in living free from the fear of man and pure joy in sharing the gospel. Even if people reject it, you know, that's why Paul and Silas, like I love the book of Acts, Paul and Silas worshiping God in a prison cell, Acts 16, singing hymns after being persecuted for their faith. That doesn't make sense in our world, does it? It makes perfect sense with the Bible. They obeyed God. They kept his commandments. They lived for an audience of one and they preached the gospel. What's the result? Even when you're in a prison cell, pure joy. 
Pure joy. Obedience results in pure joy. Maybe for you it's money. Maybe you just can't believe that somehow giving money away is going to bring you joy. That, that, that just doesn't make any sense to you. But do you realize that you can totally be enslaved to your money? Meaning your money owns you rather than you owning your money. So there's pure joy when you're free. You're, you're liberated from the love of money. Generosity promotes contentment. Do you understand that's God's command for you? To be generous. Why? Because he's trying to steal your money? He doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, doesn't he? He doesn't need your money. He commands you to be generous. Why? Because he wants you to be content. He wants your greatest joy. God's commands are what you would wish for yourself if you knew what was best for you. That's why the poorest people in the world have the greatest joy. Because they get this. They obey God. They keep his commandments. They give generously. What's the result? Pure joy. Fullness of joy every time. Why is that? Because God knows what he's doing. Isn't that at the essence of this whole thing? You stop thinking you know better than God. And you start believing, loving, resting in Christ's finished work on the cross, and you start knowing that his commands are what is best for me. And I don't give a rip what the culture says. I don't care what the person next to you at work says. I don't care what your non-Christian counselor says. What I care about is what the Word of God says. And I start believing that God's commands, because he designed me, God's commands are what I would wish for myself if I knew what was best for me. And so I obey. And the result? Fullness of joy. May God give us the grace. Here's where grace is needed, at least in my life. May God give us the grace that we would not just know that, but we would believe it. And that we would live like that well known as people who are filled with joy. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we are so grateful for your word. This is not how we think. We confess that. And Father, we confess just the myriad of sin in our life where we obey our own thinking and, and, and it results in guilt and shame rather than just listening to your word, believing the Lord Jesus, loving the Lord Jesus, and obeying the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray. I pray for, for my friends here, any friends that are here who have not yet believed in Jesus and are struggling. Father, I pray that you would press this truth 
home to them, that God created them in your image and he knows what he's doing. He knows what brings the greatest joy in their life, that they might delight themselves in the Lord Jesus. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would make this connection that obedience results in joy. Father, may we not be a joyless people. But instead, Father, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by grace, delighting in the Lord Jesus, which causes us to bear fruit, bring glory to your name, and brings us great joy. May we be a people that are known for our joy. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.